We're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning, so I invite you to turn to John's Gospel. And we are going to pick up where we left off last time a month ago in chapter 3. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And our, our text specifically will be verses 9 through 15. And this is the second half of the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. Last time we looked at verses 1 through 8, we looked at the first half of that dialogue, and this morning we'll be covering verses 9 through 15. But, you know, since it's been a month, and we're jumping right into the middle of a conversation here, I thought it'd be good to review what transpired in those first eight verses. So I want us to get us situated back in that context, and what was discussed, so that we might rightly understand what is transpiring in verses 9 through 15. So let's read, for review. Read along, verses 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now Nicodemus was a leading Pharisee. He was a member of the ruling council in Jerusalem, and thus he was a very prominent an influential leader among the Jews. He also was one of the many in Jerusalem who had witnessed Jesus performing miraculous signs. And as a result, he was convinced that Jesus was a teacher who had been sent by God. He wanted to speak with Jesus personally, so he went to him in the evening. And based on what Jesus ended up saying to Nicodemus, It seems that Nicodemus wanted to ask him about the coming kingdom of God and thus the ultimate deliverance and restoration of the nation of Israel, which long ago had been promised and foretold through the prophets. However, as we saw, Jesus chose to tell Nicodemus the truth that in order to see and enter The kingdom of God, one must first be born from above. Born from above. And as I explained last time, by making such a statement, Jesus was indicating that Nicodemus would not see the kingdom of God if he remained as he was. And what was he? What was he? He was an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of God's chosen people and nation. More than that, he was a devout Pharisee. He had devoted his life to keeping the law of God and holding to the religious traditions of the elders. He even had advanced to becoming a member of the high council in Jerusalem and was thus a ruler of the Jews and a prominent teacher of the people. It's a pretty impressive resume. And yet, Jesus told him he needed to be born from above. His works, his achievements, and his religious devotion throughout the many years of his life. He was an old man. All of that did not earn him a place in God's coming kingdom. 
Jesus essentially told him that he must become a new man. That is, he must be made a new man. What Nicodemus needed in order to be saved from the coming judgment and to see the kingdom of God was not something that he himself could bring about, but only something that God could bring about. And the source of this birth is from above. It is brought about by God. Nicodemus was surprised by Jesus' statement. He could not comprehend the concept of a second birth. He believed he was already in good standing with God. And as a Pharisee who believed in the resurrection of the dead, well, his hope was that after he died, God would raise him from the dead to everlasting life. But Jesus was telling him that he must experience a second birth here and now in this life. Nicodemus wanted Jesus to explain what he meant because to him the concept of a second birth seemed absurd and impossible. Jesus then restated his claim in terms similar to a number of passages of scriptures uh, in the prophets that spoke of God's necessary work of transforming his people from the inside by pouring out his spirit upon them so that they would be spiritually cleansed and made alive and thus made fit to enter his kingdom. Jesus said one must be born of water and spirit, that is, born of the Holy Spirit, who brings about that necessary washing of regeneration and renewal within the heart of every sinner whom God has graciously chosen to save. And then Jesus reasoned with Nicodemus that those who are born of the flesh are flesh. That is, they are fleshly in nature. In other words, they are unspiritual. They are born in sin. They are separated from fellowship with God and thus lacking spiritual life. That's how every man is born into this world, every woman born into this world. They are flesh. They are unspiritual. They are lacking spiritual life, fellowship with God. They are separated from God because of their sin. Those who are born of the Spirit, Jesus said, are given spiritual life and thus transformed and renewed from within so that they are truly spiritual people who have fellowship with God and are thus fit to enter his coming kingdom. So the point is that people cannot change their nature. Apart from God's gracious intervention, they will remain as they are. You will remain as you are, as you were born into this world. Spiritually dead, separated from God. The Holy Spirit must come upon and impart spiritual life to a person in order for that person to have true fellowship with God and eternal life. It's a work of God. Jesus then, by way of an illustration, emphasized the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in causing the new birth. It is his doing, not yours. It is according to his will, not yours. And as you know, when the wind has come upon you because you hear its sound, you know the wind has come upon you when you hear its sound, although you didn't cause the wind to blow. You're not in control of that. But you hear its sound. Even though you can't see it or fully comprehend or trace out its activity, Jesus said, so you will know when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and has given you spiritual life and made you new. So are those who are born of the Spirit, he said. That brings us to our text for this morning. That's all that has been said so far. And this portion of the text begins with Nicodemus' response to everything Jesus explained regarding man's need to be born from above in order to see and enter the kingdom of God. So we read, in response to what Jesus had said, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, when we look at Nicodemus' response to Jesus in verse 9, we see that he hasn't made any progress, has he? He got the clarification, he got some more teaching, and he's stuck in the same place. When Jesus stated that one must be born from above, Nicodemus responded in confusion and disbelief by saying, how can a man be born when he is old? Then after Jesus explained further that this was a spiritual birth brought about by the Holy Spirit and using the same terms the prophets used when speaking of this supernatural saving work of God, Nicodemus once again responded in confusion and disbelief. How can these things be? He was stuck in his wrong thinking that being a faithful Jew and devoting himself to keeping God's commandments had earned him a place in God's coming kingdom. And through all of this, through all of his religious devotion, which was misguided and polluted by the extra-biblical tradition of the elders that he was devoted to, and he strived to maintain, through all of that, he had cultivated a wrong view of himself that led him to think, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Rather than, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, Nicodemus thought that he was good with God and that all that needed to happen next was for the promised Messiah to come and deliver Israel from Gentile rule and reestablish their kingdom so that they might dwell in the promised land and enjoy everlasting peace and blessing from God. But Jesus was telling him that he, along with the rest of the people of Israel, must be born of the Spirit. What Jesus was telling him was consistent with the testimony of Scripture which is why he said in response to Nicodemus' question in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Ouch. Throughout Israel's history, they were collectively a stiff-necked and stubborn people. And they repeatedly rebelled and turned away from God. Read your Old Testament. See, see how their performance is regarding faithfulness to God. Stiff-necked and stubborn describes them well, collectively as a nation, as a people. And this was because why? They had sinful, unbelieving hearts. They were born with those sinful hearts because they, along with the rest of mankind, were descendants of Adam and Eve, who descended or who sinned against God and were thus severed from fellowship with God and corrupted to the core so that sin ruled their hearts. And so it was with all their children after them. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. So it was even with the Israelites, God's chosen people. Oh, they're special, but they're the same nature. They have the same nature. No matter how many wondrous works of God they witnessed, no matter how much they beheld the righteous standards set forth in God's written law, no matter how much they were taught and warned and exhorted to love the Lord their God with all their heart and to fear him and to walk in his ways so that it might go well with him and with them, they would continue to resist his revealed will for them and rebel unless he gave them spiritual life. And transform them from the inside. You see, so the problem is the heart. And even though they were the chosen people of God and had all the privileges and blessings, got to see God work in wondrous ways, had his written word, that heart was the same. It had a bent towards rebellion against God. It was hardened. Thus, they were stiff-necked and stubborn. They needed God to change their hearts. 
And that's what God promised to do one day for the nation as a whole in accordance with a new covenant that he would establish with them. The actual phrase new covenant appears in the Old Testament only in Jeremiah. But the promised blessings of this new covenant are nonetheless foretold in the scriptures. In Deuteronomy, all the way back in Deuteronomy, in chapter 30, we read God revealing through Moses, speaking to the people of Israel, to the nation, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. Do you see the result of the new heart? In Isaiah 32, God revealed through the prophet Isaiah, for context starting in verse 12, he says, Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palaces forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. What's happening? They're experiencing the judgment of God for their faithlessness, their rebellion, their sin. Consequences came upon them. And they're in these circumstances, and he says that everything's deserted will be this way until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. Sounds familiar to what Jesus was talking about. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. What just happened? The Spirit of God is poured out from on high, and then the people are changed. It says justice will dwell. It doesn't mean there will be ju- well there will be justice because the people will be just. Righteousness will abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Just realize you guys don't have that on the screen. But you hear what happens, right? The promise of the pouring out of the Spirit will transform the people and so that justice and righteousness truly will be experienced in the land because they will be walking in the ways of the Lord. They'll be changed. Jeremiah 31. A little survey, just so you know. Jesus is speaking to what is clearly taught in the Scriptures, foretold. Jeremiah 31. In your Bible... 31 to 34, there it is. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Again, he's speaking of the nation corporately. House of Israel, house of Judah. That kingdom was divided, but it will be reunited. One people, once again, one kingdom. He will make a new covenant with his entire chosen people. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And finally, the big one, which Jesus probably, if he was referring to one passage, specifically is Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Once again, new covenant blessings, new covenant promises. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22 Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. 
and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There's the new birth right there, born from above. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who pass by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Notice, if you recall, and we read through that passage, we saw the new birth, the born from above, but notice the, that the, before Israel's restoration as a nation, that's why I read that second half, all the blessing that comes, the, re, the reunification of the people and the land, the rebuilding of, of the city, basically the restoration of their kingdom and blessing come upon them before that happens. And this is the kingdom of God, by the way. It's established on the earth through the reign of Israel's Messiah. Before that happens, God said that he will first, what? Pour out his spirits upon the people to cleanse and transform them so that they will truly love him and obey him from the heart. With a new heart and a new spirit, they will truly live as his people. As Jesus said, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What is the message for anyone who desires to be saved from the righteous wrath of God and to enter into and dwell in his everlasting kingdom? What is the message? You likewise must be born from above. You must be born of the spirit. Nicodemus should not have marveled then that Jesus said, you all must be born from above, born of the Spirit. The testimony of Scripture, as you all just saw, was clear that those who would receive everlasting life and enter the kingdom of God had to be made new from on high. And Nicodemus, who was supposedly an expert in the Scriptures, being not only a Pharisee, but also one of the most recognized and established religious teachers in Israel, he should have understood the things that Jesus was telling him. At least he shouldn't have been confused and astonished by what Jesus said. He should have recognized the consistency between the claims of Jesus and the testimony of Scripture. And the same is true with all of you. You have the entire written Word of God. You have the entire Old Testament. By the way, that's really important. It's the foundation for the new. God has made it clear. So when we come across what Jesus says in John, we're like, say, what? I don't understand. Well, maybe there's a gap in our understanding because we haven't given ourselves to reading the things God has made clear. Jesus then said to Nicodemus, after that, that rebuke, 
Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Here's another way to translate this verse. Truly, truly, I say to you that what we know, we are speaking. And what we have seen, we are testifying. Yet our testimony, you all are not receiving. Just want you to see that kind of present activity. This is happening. And they are being told the truth. And what is happening? They are not receiving it. And by the way, it says, you all. Y'all in the South, right? But we kind of miss that in our English translation. But he's speaking of not just Nicodemus, but the situation of all the people. Remember what happened before we even got to the scene? A lot of people were believing, but he wasn't entrusting himself to them. They weren't truly believing. They weren't really receiving his testimony. Now, if you recall, the first thing Nicodemus said to Jesus back in verse 2 was, Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Well, Nicodemus was speaking not just of himself, but on behalf of his fellow Pharisees who had also witnessed the signs Jesus performed in Jerusalem. Nicodemus made his confident claim about what he and the others knew and what they had seen. He was confident. Now, Jesus, as the greater authority, since Nicodemus had already acknowledged that he was a teacher from God, Jesus, as the greater authority, was telling Nicodemus what he knew and what he had seen. And we see that Jesus said, we, as Nicodemus did earlier. So he was speaking not only on behalf of himself. Who else then? Who else was he speaking on behalf of? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Again, there's different views on this and everything, but I would say this is probably the best interpretation of who he's referring to. Himself and John the Baptist. John the Baptist and Jesus were both teachers from God, and they both spoke for God. John the Baptist was the prophet whom God had raised up in Israel to prepare the people for the coming of their long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus was the Christ, the incarnate Son of God. John the Baptist had, had been speaking of the nearness of God's kingdom and of the anticipated and necessary work of the Holy Spirit upon the people in order to make them fit for that kingdom. John the Baptist had been speaking of this. He had been proclaiming that the Christ who was coming would baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. That's what John was proclaiming. More than that, after Jesus had gone to John and received his water baptism, John saw what Jesus saw. And what did they see? They saw the Spirit of God, of God descended from heaven like a dove and came to rest on Jesus. They witnessed it. Now, of course... Jesus, being the incarnate, eternal Son of God, had seen infinitely more than John. But they were both nonetheless speaking and testifying to what they themselves knew and had seen. Earlier in this gospel, we read the following concerning John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God, back in the prologue, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, and the light was Jesus, the Son of God coming into the world. And then later in chapter 1, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen And have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Do you see? John also had been proclaiming this truth of the work of the Spirit, the need to be baptized by the Spirit. And Jesus phrases it this way, you must be born from above, born of the Spirit. And then, well, there was Nicodemus, 
who had come to Jesus as the leading representative of the Pharisees and as one of the high-ranking religious leaders of the nation. He spoke on behalf of his colleagues who believed that Jesus must be a teacher sent from God. Now remember that Jesus had just revealed himself to the people in Jerusalem. His ministry went public. What did he do? Well, he cleansed the temple. And then it says, while he was in Jerusalem, he was performing miraculous signs in their midst. His ministry had just begun. Well, what does that mean? Well, he hadn't yet said enough to trigger their animosity, the people's animosity, the religious leader's animosity. Hasn't been that much time yet. However, what about John the Baptist? Oh, John the Baptist, he had been ministering for at least two whole months at this point. Two whole months, at least. He had, been, he had called the many Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious leaders of the nation, who came to him, what he, he called them uh, brood of vipers, and admonished them to repent and warned them not to presume that they were safe from the coming judgment of God because they were descendants of Abraham. It's like God can make descendants of Abraham from rocks. You need to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance to the top religious leaders who come to him. So that's, that's the impression he left. And though it was obvious to all the people that John was a prophet of God, it was, it was clear this man is a prophet. The Pharisees took offense at his message and later sent a delegation from Jerusalem to formally interrogate John and call his office into question. Why are you baptizing then, huh? You the Christ? Right? They, they challenged him. They didn't like what he was saying. In light of this, in light of uh, Nicodemus's response to what Jesus had told him, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, we, we teachers from God, him and John the Baptist, we are speaking of what we know and bearing witness to what we have seen. But you all are not receiving our testimony. And why? Why were they not receiving the testimony? Why? Because of their unbelief. Stiff-necked, stubborn hearts, unbelieving hearts. It was their unbelief. What was true of Nicodemus and the rest of the religious leaders was also true of the people as a whole. They did not truly believe. And we talked about that when we were in that passage where it says they, many believed in his name. Ah, they believed on their terms, according to maybe their understanding, with their view of who Jesus is. But they didn't believe with a saving belief. They were not born from above. It was a damning belief. It was superficial. They were not saved. They did not truly believe. No saving faith. And saving faith, by the way, was a, is a gift of God. And therefore, the people who were not receiving the full testimony of John and Jesus, although many in some way were believing in Jesus' name, Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. And in light of Nicodemus' unbelief, which was, again, he keeps saying you all, but it's just Nicodemus, but Nicodemus really is representative of the unbelief of the other religious leaders and even the people at large. Jesus said in verse 12, in light of his unbelief, in light of Nicodemus' unbelief, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? A more literal translation is as follows. If I told you all the earthly things and you all are not believing, how, if I should tell you all the heavenly things, will you all believe? So he's presenting the scenario. If this is the case, I'm speaking earthly things and it's met with unbelief. How, if I should tell you, begin to tell you the heavenly things, will you believe? The earthly things were what Jesus was just speaking of. That is, the need for men to be born from above, born of the Spirit. Those are the earthly things. This was an earthly matter, not in the sense that it was merely physical and not a spiritual matter. It was, in fact, a spiritual matter, and it required divine intervention. 
However, it was an earthly matter in the sense that it was something that must take place here on earth. One is not born of the Spirit after death or after the kingdom of God comes. You must be born of the Spirit here and now if you are to have eternal life and see the kingdom of God. God's kingdom, which is Christ's kingdom, is not of this world. It is not from here. It is heavenly. And one day the Lord Jesus will bring heaven down to earth and reign over the world in righteousness. But only those upon whom the Holy Spirit comes and transforms here and now in this present short earthly life will see and enter that kingdom. As I mentioned earlier, Nicodemus had most likely gone to Jesus with the intention of asking him questions about the coming of God's kingdom. And what we see Jesus telling him in verse 12 is that if he doesn't believe what he has been told concerning his most essential need, which is also the necessary condition for him to enter God's kingdom, then he won't believe what Jesus tells him concerning the nature of the kingdom and other heavenly things, such as Jesus' relation to God the Father and his true identity and nature as God the Son, heavenly things. And the same is true for the rest of the religious leaders and the people in general. You need to believe this matter first. This is your most essential need. And if you're stumbling over this, how will you believe anything else I tell you that is far greater and isn't even about things transpiring on earth? One commentator says, Jesus says, in effect, that entrance into the kingdom depends absolutely on new birth. If Nicodemus stumbles over this elementary point of entry, then what is the use of going on to explain more of the details of life in the kingdom? Now, again, Jesus will speak of heavenly things, but they won't get it. Another commentator says, Far greater and higher things are included in the gospel and must also be told and testified. If the lesser are met with unbelief, what will happen in the case of the greater? Jesus then said in verse 13 to Nicodemus, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, in order to understand this verse rightly, here's what we got to do. It's not in isolation. We must keep in mind that it flows out of and is connected with verse 12. Jesus had just indicated to Nicodemus that he had the ability to tell him the heavenly things. He then said in verse 12, and, and there's an and there, by the way, in the text, not in the translation, and no one has ascended into heaven. So Jesus can tell him of heavenly things, but how would he believe? And he says, and no one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What was his point? What's the point? His point was that no one else could tell Nicodemus the heavenly things except for him, Jesus, because no one has ever ascended to heaven and obtained firsthand knowledge of those heavenly things and then returned to earth so as to speak of them with inherent authority. No one. Jesus, however, had no need to ascend to heaven in order to speak authoritatively of such things because he is the one who came from there. He descended from heaven. One commentator explains it this way, Jesus can speak of heavenly things not because he ascended to heaven from a home on earth and then descended to tell others of his experiences, but because heaven was his home in the first place. And therefore, he has inherently the fullness of heavenly knowledge. He is the one who came from heaven. He is the revelatory 
Son of Man. And what was this one who had come from heaven saying to Nicodemus? What's he telling him? You must be born from above in order to see and enter the kingdom of God. This is beyond man's doing. This is beyond man's ability. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And such truth, such a statement, such a claim is intended to bring you to the end of yourself. Should it not, you need to be born from above. That's a work of the Spirit's. You need to be made new. How much did you contribute to your first birth? All righty. This truth should bring you to the end of yourself and make you realize and accept that you can do nothing, nothing to save yourself from the judgment of God. You cannot do anything to make yourself righteous before God. And you cannot do anything to make yourself fit to enter his heaven and his kingdom. It's beyond you. You have no choice then but to look in faith to God who alone can graciously save you. Nicodemus needed to be confronted with the truth about his own helpless spiritual condition. And so do we. We need to believe the testimony of Jesus that the Holy Spirit must truly give us life and make us new if we are to have the hope of heaven. And that apart from him doing so, we are not saved. Now, Jesus had already indicated the futility of going further with Nicodemus and speaking of heavenly things. However, he gave him one more word of instruction concerning the earthly things. That is the things that must take place on earth in order to make the salvation of sinners possible. He had just said that he, the Son of Man, was the one who had descended from heaven. And then he went on to say, in verses 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The account with Moses that Jesus was referring to is recorded in the book of Numbers. Maybe you're familiar with it. Nicodemus sure was. I mean, that's in the books of Moses. Probably has those things memorized. Numbers 21, this account, brief account of the Israelites wandering about in the wilderness because of their sin and rebellion. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Hey, how was Egypt, by the way? Oh, yeah, they're in bondage and slavery. Horrible. But, and God miraculously delivered them out, judged that nation, brought them out, redeemed them by his mighty hand. And here they are. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Oh, you know what they're talking about right there? Manna, bread from heaven, bread miraculously provided by God to sustain the people in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness, and it sustained them. By the way, this is over three decades into their wandering. And granted, you know, not much variety. <laughs> but nonetheless, for shame, how dare they? The miraculous food that God has provided, this worthless food. Then the Lord, that's it, sent fiery serpents, venomous snakes among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel, the people of Israel died. And by the way, go, look, up, look up pictures of venomous snakes. You know, just, it's terrifying, the thought. Many, just all slithering about left and right, people getting bit left and right and just dropping dead. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Well, they knew what was happening. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he could look at the bronze serpent and live. Because of their sin against God, the Israelites were bitten by venomous snakes and were dying. They could not do anything to heal themselves. The wages of their sin was death. However, God chose to graciously provide a way for them to be physically healed and granted life. And that way involved them just looking upon the bronze serpent that Moses had raised up on a pole in their midst. And looking required them to acknowledge their helpless condition and to look outside of themselves to God's provision of salvation. Jesus said, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Which, by the way, was a foreshadowing of his voluntary death on a cross for the sins of his people. Later in this gospel, after after Jesus makes this statement for the third time, John clarifies he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What Jesus was telling Nicodemus is that he is God's provision of salvation. And as the Israelites long ago could do nothing to save themselves, but had to believe God and in faith look beyond themselves to the means God had provided for their healing, so must everyone believe in the Son of Man and look to him in faith as God's provision for their eternal salvation. Nicodemus thought he had to work to establish his own righteousness through religious devotion and moral self-discipline. Thought he had to work at it. He thought salvation was dependent upon his own efforts. When Jesus had first told him he must be born from above, his response was, how can a man do this? How can a man do this? When Jesus told him that it was the Holy Spirit's doing alone, his response was, how can these things be? The Spirit just grants life to men apart from their own efforts before God? Yes, he does. What Jesus was telling Nicodemus here was that it was the Son of Man who would do the work, who would do the working, who would do the necessary work before God. It's not the sinner. He needs saving, but he can't do anything to save himself. But the Son of Man, Jesus, he is the one who would do the work before God, the necessary work, so that everyone who is believing in him will have eternal life. Jesus does the work. You can do nothing. What must you do? Believe in the Son of Man. Believe in Jesus. Believe in him as God's provision of salvation and life. Now, you know what? What you don't want to do is think, yeah, Nicodemus, real religious guy, Pharisee, you know, read about those guys in Scripture and disconnect yourself from this situation. Because guess what? Everybody has a bent toward, I mean, everybody gets there into thinking that somehow they can justify themselves for God. They can do something. They're good enough. Whatever it is, it's looking to your own ability. And the message here for all of you, just as it was to Nicodemus, you're not Pharisees, you're not masters of the scriptures and the tradition of the elders and all that, but you might be trusting in yourself. You might be thinking that you've got to do enough before God, that you're good enough. If somebody asks, why would he let you into heaven? Would your answer be about stuff that you've done, your faithfulness, your devotion? Or have you come to the end of yourself? That's where you need to be. And notice that this conversation well, it ends. Jesus doesn't say anything more. And by today's standards, you might say, Jesus made a horrible evangelist. He shouldn't leave him hanging like that. <laughs> say, no, 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 I don't want you to be, okay, let me explain more. He just left him there with that tension, right? And that truth stuck with Nicodemus. The truth was planted. And you know what? When we get to the end of John's gospel, we're going to see 
that it is after Jesus was crucified and died. We have this man, Joseph of Arimathea, who wants to ask permission to take him down and basically provide the burial for him. And in John's Gospel, we read there's another man with him. Joseph of Arimathea, ruler of Jews, he was a Pharisee, he was a believer, but he didn't approve of what all the other Jews did in crucifying him. But now he's here to help. Another man was with him to help with that burial, Nicodemus. You think the truth stuck with him? And maybe when he saw that Jesus indeed foretold what he was going to do, maybe it was then that he believed. We'll leave it there and pick up uh, next time in the remainder of the passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Thank you for this morning. Thank you for giving us the, the freedom and the opportunity to gather together and to be blessed by one another. Your love demonstrated through one another and, and, and just the opportunity to worship you and to give you praise and honor and glory and to build one another up as you've called us to. And we thank you for your word and reminding us of the essential gospel truth that there is nothing we can do and if we are yours, nothing we have done that has reconciled ourselves to you and, and earned our uh, favor in your sight or forgiveness or righteousness, Lord, but it is solely your doing. It's by grace we are saved. And it, it was solely us looking to your son and trusting in him as the means that you have provided, the one through whom salvation comes to all who believe. And we pray, Father, for those who, who have not been born from above, who, who are here and are going through the motions of, of religious works and, and being here and, and being quote-unquote Christian but haven't been transformed, we pray, Lord, that you would cause them to be born from above, that you have mercy on them, that you would grant them repentance and faith that they might truly believe in your Son and submit their life to him as Lord and believe indeed that he alone can save and entrust their very souls to him. We pray for their salvation this morning. And for the rest of us, Lord, keep us fixated on your son, not on our own abilities, because apart from you, we can do nothing. Help us to honor you by honoring Christ and rejoicing in the grace you've showed us through faith in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.